Thank you to the Lipses and the Whites. Very grateful for the music this morning. I love the prayer of confession from the Book of Common Prayer. You may not know it, but I've been slipping it in on you from time to time, especially at our gathered prayer services. Uh, Of course, the reason I think I love it, or one of the reasons I think I love it, is it is undoubtedly the most famous prayer of confession in the English language. People, Christians speaking English, have been saying it for centuries now. Listen to just the first few lines. And remember, these lines were said multiple times a day for centuries. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And there is no health in us, but thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Now, is there anything like that in modern worship, typically? Typically not. Typically in modern worship, you don't find anything remotely close to what we've just read. That prayer of confession may actually sound incredibly unusual. It may sound harsh to our modern ears. But I think it's vital that we recover prayers like that. I think it's vital that we recover prayers of confession and that we highlight them in our service. If you get our newsletter, of course, you saw something I wrote about that last week. You've seen how we're trying to incorporate that even in our service order. Rupert led us in that earlier um, this morning. See, the reason this is important is because the unique claim of Christianity, this thing we call the gospel, the good news, is not that we somehow clean ourselves up so that God would be pleased by us, It's not that we do more good works than the bad things and then we have some enjoyment of the afterlife. No, the unique claim is that God does through Christ what we could never do for ourselves. God chooses according to his own good pleasure and in his unilateral sovereignty to set a people apart for himself. And he made that determination long before the foundation of the world. That is the sort of picture we get of the gospel. Not that you and I do anything, but that God, before we were even a thought in anybody else's mind, of course in God's mind, that's a whole other story. But before we were even a thought, God is already orchestrating and planning and determining a plan for redemption for his creation. It's this glorious truth that we want to look at this morning that we see here at the end of Haggai 2 as Haggai points us forward to look at the character of God. God has chosen his church to be holy in Christ. And the way God does that is through something theologians have called the great exchange. That is, Christ for our sins. In God's free and uninhibited will, he has chosen without any aid from human beings to redeem a people for himself. Let me repeat that just so we're all clear. 
in God's free and uninhibited will, he has chosen to redeem a people for himself. Now, he does this in the storyline of Scripture with Israel. Of course, he's already done that with their forefathers, with Abram and all those who would follow. But when he frees Israel from slavery in Egypt, he says this to them. So he frees them, and then he says this, Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my, and get all this language, treasured possession among all people. So, in other words, I'm going to set you apart, treasured possession, and uh, I'm going to do that because all the earth is mine. Verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? They point people to the God they serve. And priests are also holy, which explains this next part. And a holy nation. So that's God's determination for Israel. He frees them from Egypt. They didn't get out of Egypt, right? He gets them out of Egypt, and then he says, this is the reason I did it, because I've set you apart to be holy. Now, the New Testament picks up this same language, especially in 1 Peter, and says, this is what God does with the church. God frees the church from the kingdom of darkness, brings them into his kingdom, his heavenly kingdom, and has set them apart for holiness. For himself, to be a treasured possession, to be priest, to be a holy people before him. That's what we are as those who are in Christ. I want to fix, I want us to fix our mind on something. I want us to fix this deeply in in our mind. The gospel is the proclamation of what God has done, not what we have done. The gospel is the proclamation of what God has done, not what we have done. And I want us to think about this for a few reasons. For the first reason is this. This will strengthen our witness. This will strengthen our witness. The prevalent belief today is that all religions are essentially the same. Uh, Those coexist stickers have been around for so long now, they're not even relevant to use as an illustration but, but, but that is the prevalent belief. If you just do some good things, be a nice person, love others, try really hard to, to be tolerant and to do charitable things, then you will enjoy the bliss of the afterlife or, you know, maybe, maybe not because others would say, well, you do those things and that's what it means to be human, but, but there's not really an afterlife or if there is, we don't know what it's like, so who cares, Christians need to be absolutely clear that the gospel, which means good news, is an announcement about what God has done in Christ. It's not something we have done. It's not something we contribute to. It's not about the the good works that we accumulate. Our missions and evangelism committee actually had this conversation just the other night, and I think it's super important. One of the most important things that we can do, in fact, I'm not sure there's anything more vital to our witness than this, is to point out clearly how unique the gospel claim is among other religions. 
I've said it before from up here on, on this um, platform. But you can search any other religion and what you'll find are various claims of how one reaches peace or tranquility or, or God if they have the concept of God. But Christianity is totally different because it comes in and says God has done everything for us that we could never do in Christ. And that's totally different than any other religious claim out there. And so I think one of the most important things for us as Christians in our day, in this cultural moment, especially in the area we live in, in the context we live in, is that the gospel is not do better, clean yourself up, be more religious, try harder to go to church more times a year. It is Christ died for our sins. Christ died for, there's an exchange, our sins. A second reason I want you to fix this in your mind is that this is your identity in Christ if you are a believer. You are chosen by God, beloved, called to be part of his church, and set apart for holiness. And he who began a good work in you will complete that good work. He will ensure that you are holy, that you are sanctified. Number three, the final reason I want to fix this in your mind is because this should lead us to celebrate the power and goodness of God. I think one of the major problems in modern churches is that we don't talk enough about the character of God. We talk far too much about ourselves. But what happens when we begin to talk about the character of God is it begins to change the way we see the world. And when we talk about the character of God properly, we're left with no other appropriate response than worship and awe and praise, what we sometimes call doxology. Often in pastoral counsel, the thing I tell people is quit focusing so much on yourself and turn your attention to the character traits of God. If you can spend 15 minutes thinking about God's goodness as opposed to praying about that thing that's really fretting you, you will make more progress than you could have ever dreamed just in meditating on who God is. There's a direct correlation to meditating on who God is and the state of our hearts and perhaps the state of our minds. So we want to celebrate the power and goodness of God. Now, all of that to say, we're wrapping up our series in Haggai this morning. If you're just joining us, I know it's Mother's Day, so we have visitors and welcome. What we usually do is we kind of go through books uh, so that we can attend to the words of Scripture and you don't just hear my fishing stories, not that I have any, I'm a terrible fisherman, but whatever, fill in the blank, I'm a terrible golfer. I really don't have any stories. That's kind of part of the reason we just go through books of the Bible. Now, we, we go through books of the Bible because we believe it's God's Word, and we believe the most important thing is that you would hear God's Word when you come here on Sunday morning. So we're in the book of Haggai. It's a little obscure book in the back of the Old Testament. If you have a Bible or an electronic device, I invite you to turn there. Definitely use your table of contents. It's little. It's hard to find. No problem if you need to use it. Haggai is one of those books that doesn't get a lot of attention. Yet what we've seen over the last two weeks is Haggai has called the people to prioritize worship. They have said, you must prioritize, or Haggai has said, you must prioritize the worship of the one true God. 
See, they've been neglecting this. And the evidence of their neglect has come in the fact that they have a temple that only is half built. And God sends word to Haggai and says, look at this temple. It's in shambles. This is supposed to be the symbol of my presence among you. And yet here you are in your elaborate, luxurious homes, not thinking at all about the spiritual state of your hearts. Now, what we learn throughout Haggai and what we're going to see really clearly is it's never really about the temple itself. It is ultimately about directing us to who God is and what God wants to do to redeem his creation. They will complete the temple, of course. We won't see it in Haggai, but in the history of the Old Testament, they do. But what's fascinating about this final section in the book of Haggai is is that it doesn't really focus on the completion of the temple. It doesn't really celebrate any sort of completion. Instead, its primary concern, don't miss this, its primary concern is the action of God to make an unholy people holy, to bless them, and to secure their redemption. The primary concern of Haggai 2, 10 through 23 is the action of God to make an unholy people holy, to bless them, and to secure their redemption. What we're going to see through this passage is a series of reversals where the Lord unilaterally, without anybody's help or, or opinion, decides to reverse curses, he decides to bless, and he decides to redeem his people. And all of that tells us that what Haggai is writing about is only a shadow of the real thing. He's only pointing to what God wants to do and what God will do in Christ. Haggai is the shadow, the substance is Christ. And that's what we're going to see as we work our way through the passage. So let's take a look at the passage, if you will. Begin with me in Haggai chapter 2, verse 10. Verse 10, on the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. So here's this third time we see the word of the Lord coming. Verse 11, thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priest about the law. Then we have two questions and they're going to sound like riddles, but but I'll try to help us go through them slowly. Verse 12, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment... Sounds disgusting, right? You wrap up some meat and roll it up in your garment and carry it along. That's what you do before grocery bags. And and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? That's the question. So you have holy meat, put it in the garment, and then the garment, not the meat itself, but the garment, so three steps removed here, the garment happens, you, you know, you put a cucumber in there, does it become holy? And the answer, according to the end of verse 12, is no. The priest answered and said no. So indirect holiness or indirect or proximity to holiness doesn't result in holiness. All right, that's the first question. Verse 13, second question. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these things above list, does that become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. So, we have the inability of indirect contact to make something holy, but we have the permeability of unholy things to make pretty much everything else unholy or unclean. 
So does, does contact with uncleanness produce further uncleanness? The answer is yes. Holiness can't be obtained through indirect contact and uncleanliness permeates all objects. Now these seem like riddles, I know. And what in the world do you do with these? Fortunately, Haggai explains kind of where he's going and he applies them to the people in verse 14. So look at verse 14 with me. Then Haggai answered and said, so is it. Okay, so everything you've just read, so is it with this people and with this nation before me. Talking about Judah, right? They're not building the temple, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer, there is unclean. Okay, so everything they're doing is unclean. Their, their proximity to a half-built temple does not make them holy. You see that connection, so that's that first part. But the fact that they're neglecting it means they are unholy. It may even be that there's this sort of vague reference. It's a little more complex, but, but I'll just toss it out there for you. The idea of being unclean here could have, as the ESV translates it, as most translations do it, could have this idea of touching a dead corpse. If that's so, there's probably this vague reference here to this temple corpse that's not built, that's not erected, that's sitting in their midst, that's actually causing all of them to be unclean or impure before God. In any case, here's the problem. God looks at the people and he sees uncleanness. They aren't holy. And everything they do and everything they touch is unholy. And this is an important point of application. You know, I, I, I've heard far too many pastors, for example, well-meaning pastors, godly pastors, I believe it, faithful pastors, but yet I've heard far too many of them get up and say something like this, that if everyone just lived by the Ten Commandments, we would all be better off. And then, of course, I'm not getting into the politics here, but we make a big deal about displaying the Ten Commandments as though that's going to save certain people. But what we failed to understand is really basic theology, basic Bible reading. The Ten Commandments are the law. Do you know what the law is capable of doing? It's capable of exposing sin and condemning sinners. Exposing sin and condemning sinners. The law never could save anyone. When God says in Exodus 19, I have made you my people, I have chosen you, do you realize that's before the law is given? It's not until the next chapter in Exodus 20 that we get the Ten Commandments. What God does always precedes any call to obedience or holiness. And that's crucial. For us to understand the gospel, we have to realize that we could spend all day saying, I'm going to keep this list of ten rules here, or the 613 minor rules in the Old Testament, if you'd rather go that route to really make sure you're okay. You would never be able to keep them. But the gospel says... That God has done for you what you could never do for yourself. And I think this is so important. Remember where I started. Everybody today seems to think that religions are essentially the same. In fact, I had a conversation a few years ago. I was visiting uh, UVA. And I happened to be talking to the nurse who was, um, 
who was doing this or doing the prep for the person I was visiting for the surgery. And, and he had a Sanskrit, the nurse, he had a Sanskrit tattoo on him. And I'm a language guy, so I immediately picked up on it and thought, okay, this, this is Sanskrit, so this is an Eastern religious thing. So let's have a conversation. What's on your arm? I'm just curious. And he explains. I forget what it actually was at this point. But then we get to talking a little bit. I, I mentioned some stuff about um, the biblical languages, and, and we talk there. And he, then he makes this statement. He says, I've read so many near-death accounts. I've read tons of near-death accounts, and every one of them essentially boils down to this. Were you good to people while you lived here? And I thought, okay, that sounds nice, but there's a big issue here. If there's a God, don't we have to account for how we have behaved toward that God, not just everybody else? And that was the issue. The issue is always coming down to if God issues these commands and if God explains that you are unholy before my sight, then yes, we need to reckon with being nice to our neighbor, but we also have to reckon with how do we get right with God, this holy God. So the Ten Commandments do a great job of exposing sin and condemning, but they cannot save and they never could, by the way. Sometimes we read the Old Testament and we think that the people, if they would have just followed the law, would have been okay. That's never the case. The case is always their faith that makes them right with God. So even the best efforts under the law become sinful. Even the best efforts are unclean. So when God says through the prophet Haggai, I look at this people and I see nothing but uncleanness, that's not surprising. Not at all. So let's go back to all of what we've been saying. That modern claim that I just talked about. The claim is that our actions can be pleasing to God or make us righteous before God. That's the modern claim. But Haggai points out the problem. Proximity to holiness doesn't make something holy. And uncleanliness happens too easily. It's easy to be unholy. And proximity to holiness, like right now, showing up to church, being near me. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> Coming into a church building, which, by the way, isn't really sacred space other than the fact that for decades people have permeated this place with prayer. But this isn't God's home. God's home's the people. Right? So proximity to holiness doesn't make you holy. Showing up here doesn't make you holy. It doesn't make me holy because I'm standing up here preaching either. That's the problem. So what are the results of this uncleanness? Well, the results are always severe. Blessing is withheld. The people are cursed. Look at verse 15. We'll read a few verses here, actually 15 through 17, if you'll follow along. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. You see, they, they come to something that should be producing abundance, but it's not there. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, all these agricultural terrors that would destroy crops. Yet you did not turn to me. You did not return to me, declares the Lord. Now all of this is consistent with the storyline of Scripture. The blessings and curses God gives to his people. You know, we see this in Leviticus. We see this in uh, Exodus. We see it in Deuteronomy as well. But what God's pointing out to them through the prophet Haggai is that they're struggling. They're not experiencing abundance. Their crops are struck by the Lord, but they're not turning. They're not repenting. Notice in this situation how God is in control. 
He is sovereign. And notice how he uses discipline. Throughout Scripture, discipline is intended to bring his people back to him. We tend to think of it as something awful or mean or malevolent, but it's not. In fact, discipline, according to Scripture, confirms God's election of his people. So discipline on Israel confirmed that these are his chosen people. Hebrews goes on to make the same point for us today who are in Christ. That discipline confirms that we are the children of God because God disciplines those whom he loves. I don't care about the the child running down the street doing something crazy, right, unless they're in danger. But I do care about my children. You see how that works? It's not because I actually hate that person, but I have a special relationship with my children that causes me to correct them, to challenge them, to try to form them into good human beings and future adults. And what we see next in all of this, though, in spite of the people's failures... In spite of what they've done, in spite of God you know, slowly disciplining them. And, and I should point this out before I move forward. See, far from being a harsh God, when we hear the anger of God, we tend to think, oh, this harsh deity up in the sky somewhere. Far from being a harsh God who loses his temper, who blows up over the people's mistake, God sovereignly orchestrates all things for the redemption of his people and for his own glory. So we see discipline being always for the good of his people and for his glory. It's never one of these, I'm going to strike your crops because you ticked me off yesterday. God is always slow and patient and calculating because that is how his anger works. It is not anger like human anger. So what we see next, in spite of all of this failure, is God is calculating even through the discipline and God is going to act to bless his people in spite of their countless failures. Look at verse 18 with me. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, two times we see that consider, and I pointed that out to you back in our very first part of this series. Verse 19. Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree. By the way, those four agricultural staples to to pretty much get by in that area, in that sort of Mediterranean area, you need those four things to flourish. If they don't flourish, you're in big trouble. And yet, they haven't been flourishing. The olive tree have yielded nothing. So up until this point, things haven't been going well for you. But notice this. Here's a contrast. It's almost like a switch flipping. It's wild to think about God's goodness in how he switches here. Look at the end of verse 19. But from this day on, I will bless you. Do you see any reason why? There's there's no reason why. That's what makes this so remarkable. There's no reason for God to bless these people. From this day on, I will bless you. The Lord himself has decided, I'll reverse the curse. I will bless you. And for what reason? No other reason than that he has decided long before time began to do it. Do you see his goodness in this? Do you see his sovereignty Do you see his action according to his own good pleasure? Do you see his power to carry out his intentions apart from any human aid? 
And you might wonder, how in the world is he going to do it? How is God going to bless his people? Well, here's the second word to Haggai, the final word, verses 20 and 21. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. That's the same day that we've been reading about. Verse 21, speak to Zerubbabel. We've already met him, governor of Judah, saying, now notice here that from this point forward, the subject of all your verbs is God. I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and the riders and the horses and the riders shall go down everyone by the sword of his brother. Now remember, what we've got here is this cosmic language. Shaking the heavens, shaking the earth. It means something huge is about to happen. This is the way the prophets in the Old Testament deal with things that they don't really know how to explain. Basically, the world's going to start falling apart. That's the, that's the best we could do. The stars are going to start falling from the sky. Things are going to come unhinged. But he also talks about the kingdoms of the nations, that they're going to be overthrown, that they're going to come to meet their maker, that the chariots and the riders, all of these powerful things of the surrounding nations are going to be destroyed. And even there's going to be such chaos among them at the end of verse 22 that they're going to go down by the sword of their own people, each one by the sword of his brother or his neighbor. So God is about to undo the natural order. He's about to do something huge. He's about to reverse the course of things. The sovereign Lord is going to exercise his authority and power over the entire world. This is big stuff. Can you imagine being Zerubbabel and hearing this? Something that is going to affect the entire globe is about to happen. And then there's one final verse here for us in Haggai, verse 23. On that day, day when I do all of this, what, what the prophets sometimes call the day of the Lord, on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shetil, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. Why? For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Notice Haggai closes with a repetition of a phrase he loves. He uses it as much, he and Zechariah use it as much as any prophet in the Old Testament, the Lord of hosts. A designation that really means God is powerful, God is sovereign. He has myriads of armies next to him at his command. Now, there's a ton going on in verse 23. Really, we could have spent our entire time here. So we'll abbreviate what we want to say here. First is the fact that Zerubbabel, we're told, is going to be made like a signet ring like a signet ring. So this is the Lord reversing a curse that was already placed on Zerubbabel's family. In Jeremiah, the Lord spoke this judgment on Zerubbabel's grandfather. Look at Jeremiah twenty-two twenty-four. should be on the screen there. As I live, declares the Lord, though Kaniah, that's, that's his um, grandfather, Zerubbabel's grandfather, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, uh, wore the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off. So he was the signet ring on the Lord's hand, and yet he is tearing him off. And then verse 30, Thus says the Lord, Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. So there's the curse. 
Now, we have God here saying, I'm going to carry out a plan through Zerubbabel. I'm going to make you like a signet ring. I'm going to restore that. I'm going to put, it, I'm going to put you back on my finger, right? I'm going to, going to do something. But, but, while this speaks to his graciousness and his forgiveness, there's something else going on here. And we'll come to that in a second. For now, let me say this. When he says he's going to make him like a signet ring, He's talking about the power and authority that that ring represents. In other words, this ring is going to be the ring by which we will know that he rules the nations. There's another thing I want to point out to you. He also calls Zerubbabel my servant. So when you combine these two things, this idea that you're going to be like a signet ring with power and authority, and this language of being my servant, this is essentially a promise of the Messiah or the Christ who is to come. It's a promise we see all throughout Scripture. There's almost too many places to point to. There's, there, this promise is found in Psalm 2, pretty clearly along these lines. You see it in the latter half of Isaiah, where there's this servant of the Lord who's going to suffer for the sake of others, and, and yet he's going to be lifted up as a signal to the nations. Now the question is, why Zerubbabel? Why Zerubbabel? What is God doing through Zerubbabel? And is Zerubbabel the one we've been waiting for? Was it because he was especially holy and obedient? No, not really. He's not actually that great. God doesn't speak of Zerubbabel's virtues or merits or his excellencies. He doesn't say, I I think you're a great guy and a great leader, so I'm going to make you a signet ring. No, he says, I'm going to do this. Why? For I have chosen you. In Haggai's first word, we saw that God determines by his own free will to bless the people. They didn't earn it. Now we see in the second word that the Lord is going to bless Zerubbabel because the Lord decided to. John Calvin put it this way in his commentary on this passage. He says, If then the reason be asked why God had so much exalted Zerubbabel and bestowed upon him favor so illustrious, It can be found in nothing else but in the goodness of God alone. The only reason Zerubbabel is blessed is because of God's goodness. Everything in this passage is about God's goodness and His sovereignty. Now, there's this promise to Zerubbabel. But just like we saw last week, the promise here is never quite fulfilled in Zerubbabel. You know what? He never becomes king. He never rules the nations. The nations aren't rattled and overthrown in his lifetime. So Haggai must be talking about something that is coming down the road in the future. Haggai is only talking about shadows. At this point, we're still looking for how God is going to make unholy people holy and how he's going to change the course of the world and how Zerubbabel is going to hold authority among the nations. As we close the book of Haggai, we're wondering, what's next? And by the way, as we close the book of Zechariah, we're wondering what's next. And as we close the book of Malachi, which closes the Old Testament, we wonder what's happening next. But again, all of this is a shadow. The real substance is Christ. In the opening chapter of the New Testament, in fact, the very first chapter of our New Testament, we have Matthew giving us a long list of names. And I know every single one in this room has skipped over those names at least a dozen times. It's okay. They don't make much sense. They're difficult. Can't really pronounce them. You're never going to memorize them. But Matthew's genealogy is actually really, really important, and it's highly theological. 
In fact, he places Zerubbabel at a key juncture as he's spelling out those names. It's a crucial juncture because he's ultimately making this point. The promise you read about here that Zerubbabel is going to be like a signet ring who stands above all the nations and the nations are going to be rattled and thrashed before him. All of those promises are coming true in Christ. The signet ring to the nations wielding power and authority, that's going to be worn by Christ. It is Christ who is the appointed servant. It is Christ who will suffer. It is Christ who will hold the authority over all nations. It is Christ who will secure the righteousness of God's people and stamp them as holy possessions of the one true God. I can't emphasize this enough. The triune God determined to do this before the foundation of the world, which is why Christ is spoken of as the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. So let me summarize in, a, in, in just a single line. God has chosen His church to be holy in Christ. That's the trajectory. Right, so we've got Haggai, but we're trying to put this into the big picture of Genesis to Revelation. And here it is for you. Here's the takeaway for us as God's people, God's church. God has chosen His church to be holy in Christ. And let me just summarize that, show you that in two passages. God has exercised His uninhibited sovereignty to bring about His purposes. Namely, to redeem His people and set them apart for holiness. Let me take you to Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, I always ask people here, what do dead people do? I've yet to see much out of them personally. The dead people don't do anything, and that's why this metaphor is important. You were dead. That's our state before God. And I know it's harsh. I know it's not fun. I know we'd much rather say, you know, there's, there's, there's a divine spark inside you, and we just got to awaken that. But really, does it make sense out of the world as we know it? I don't think it does. I think this makes more sense out of how horrid things can happen. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Right, some of the bleakest verses in Scripture. Look at our situation it's breathtaking when we realize where we are. And then verse 4 changes the game. But God. But God. Unilaterally. Not God in you. Not God in the preacher. But God. Being rich in mercy. Appealing to his character, right? Who he is. But God. Being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead. In our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. Who's doing the action here? Not us. The dead people don't get up and walk on their own. Lazarus doesn't come forth until Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. He made us alive together with Christ. So it's all through Christ. By grace, this is what we mean by grace. Dead people don't do anything. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You're now seated with Christ Jesus if you're in Him so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift 
a gift of God, not a result of works. You didn't do it so that no one may boast. It's absolutely clear, isn't it? For we are his workmanship. We're his people set apart, right? Get this last part. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Before time began, God had a plan to redeem a people and set them apart as holy in Christ. It's absolutely clear, isn't it? Before the foundation of the world. Now, what should our response be to all of this? Our minds are bent, right? The response should be humility, awe, wonder. Our hearts should sing for joy over the powerful working of God to redeem his people. Look, if there's any spark in you that recognizes and loves Jesus, then the response should be, God, look what you did for me. He is in the business of reversing curses after all. He's in the business of making dead people come to life. And the gospel is all about a God who is not obligated in any way to take action. And it's all about humans who are dead in the water. And yet, in God's sovereign goodness, he chooses to redeem his people. They do nothing to earn it. God graciously accomplishes it. And how does he accomplish it? Through this thing I mentioned, the great exchange. Christ who is perfectly holy, absorbs our unholiness and then infuses us with his own holiness. It's not indirect contact. In fact, it's the Holy Spirit coming to indwell us. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. I know of no better summary. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to become sin, that's the exchange, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin for his righteousness. Now we've been talking about vision and mission here at Monument Heights. And we've been wondering about how to reach our community. I don't want you to miss the point this morning. We're only along for the ride of what God is doing. This is God's work. The gospel is God's work. It is his action in Christ. It's always God's work. We're a puzzle piece in the glorious narrative of the gospel. But that's all we are, a puzzle piece. God is good and sovereign. And before this world was brought into being, God decided without any advice or input, according to his own good pleasure, to redeem his creation. And he invites you into that. He invites you to be part of that. I don't know why he invites us. I don't know why he invites people like me to get up and teach the Bible and use this as a means of bringing people into that story. And no clue. I didn't orchestrate the plan. All of this is to say, this is a God who is worth worshiping. Nothing else should have our attention. Look at what God has done. And as we go out into this neighborhood right here, these streets around the church... And as we go out into our neighborhoods where we live, into our friends and at restaurants, into our jobs, into our hobbies, we must be absolutely clear. The claim of Christianity is that the sovereign God has chosen unilaterally to make unholy people holy through the work of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. It is not moralism, it is not virtue, it is not citizenship or economics, or ethics, or whatever. It is God's unimpeded action in Christ to make his church holy. Now, can you do me a favor? Can you just sit with that for a moment and absorb it? 
It is not any of these other things. It is God's unimpeded action in Christ to make his church holy. Just think for a moment about what that means for your salvation. How could we possibly be apathetic or indifferent or bored or disinterested when we grasp the magnitude of this thing that we say we believe, the gospel? Just sit with that for a second. Pastor Chris is coming to pray our, uh, our pastoral prayer for us, to lead us in our pastoral prayer now. Lord God, we just stand in awe of you. Lord, you're so awesome. You're just so much more than we could ever imagine. Lord, we've pondered today your greatness. And we've been reminded that you truly are worthy of our worship, that you are worthy of praise, Lord. Lord, we thank you for loving us even when we didn't deserve it. Thank you for forgiving us. Lord, we thank you for your word and just how you teach us to live and, and show us your will for our lives. Oh God, we are so thankful that you sent Christ to make a way for us to be cleansed and to be brought into a relationship with you. It just helps me to say thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for saving us from the kingdom of darkness and bringing us into your kingdom. Lord, we don't think about it often enough, but thank you for paying the price for our sins and for giving us your holiness and your righteousness. Lord, help us to always remember that this is not because we're anything special. Help us to be humble and to remember that this is your gift and that you have helped us by giving us what we could not do for ourselves. And you give us that salvation, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us as individuals, as families, and as a church, that you would show us things in our lives that we need to get rid of, that things that need to be removed. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to truly repent and turn back to you. Oh, we thank you, Lord, for your blessings. Heavenly Father, please shake us up. Don't let us become complacent. Don't let us just sit still. Lord, please help us when we hear your word, not just to be able to sit here and go away unchanged. Lord, help us to become a people, a church that seeks after you. Lord, a church that, and a people that obeys your word. And Lord, I pray that we would be people that would bring glory and honor to your name. May we be so changed by you, Lord. Would you change our hearts, our families, 
our city and even this world, Lord. Would you help our obedience and trust in you? Build your kingdom. Lord, we thank you for your goodness, your love, and your mercy. And may you be praised and honored in this place, in our homes, in our community, and throughout this world. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.